Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I am Jay Warmke. And I'm Annie Warmke this morning. You certainly are. And today we're going to talk about, I'm not really sure what we're going to talk about, but it's reimagining Appalachia. But we're joined by people who do know what we're talking about. And that's Natalia Rudiak. I'm Natalia. And also uh, Ted Bettner. Ted, why don't uh, Ted? Why don't I start with you and let you just introduce yourself? Uh, tell us what you do, uh, where you are, what you want, you know, your life in five seconds. Okay, I'll see, see what I can do. Yeah, I'm a senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, which is a sort of a think and do tank uh, located in Pennsylvania. Uh, I live here in Charleston, West Virginia, and I'd say, like, you know, my goal is just to sort of use research and analysis to help you know, advance shared prosperity uh, through the region, you know, whether it's people, projects, or policy, whatever we can do to uh, get a better deal for working families. Okay, and and Natalia, why don't you tell us what, what you do and what you're all about? Okay, uh, my name is Natalia Rudiak. I direct special projects at Reimagine Appalachia. Uh, for, for avid listeners of the show, you may know that Reimagine is a coalition of over 100 organizations, and we try to find that sweet spot where, and try to negotiate um, points of agreement with racial justice, labor union, uh, and climate action groups. Uh, and we have over also 100 local elected officials and faith leaders who endorse our work, specifically the Appalachian Climate Blueprint, uh, Infrastructure Blueprint, um, which is a document uh, that we have used to springboard investments in northern Appalachia um, because if we're not at the table we'll be on the menu so we work with Ted frequently uh, to to move forward that shared prosperity and, and local wealth okay well and one of the things Ted that I understand that you're working on is um, a full employment project is that right or my or a conference or a discussion um what what exactly how are you going to give everybody jobs i'll just jump in there <laughs> gosh if i could do that i'll tell you yeah, what yeah. Be, uh, <laughs> that'd be something uh yeah so you know i mean i think when we look at appalachia especially it's been a region that's definitely been apart from the rest of the nation uh for much of its history and when you look at the economic prosperity of the region the health education infrastructure uh, it's just lagged behind uh, for decades, uh, you know, and a big part of that has to do with, you know, sort of the natural resource extraction economy uh, in the region uh, and uh, other factors as well. Uh, but what's, and all in all, what that's led to is a persistent poverty and also persistent uh, low levels of employment in the region. And, you know, there's been talk for decades and there's been programs, you know, a lot of listeners might, you know, remember the Workers' Progress Administration or the Civilian Conservation Corps, or uh, there's several other smaller ones that are sort of at the more local level as well. Uh, But this idea that, you know, if anybody, if people don't have jobs and they want jobs, which most people do that don't have them, uh, we should be able to connect those two uh, fairly easily. And so people from, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, up until, you know, you know, FDR 
and lots of other uh, policymakers, especially in the 70s, uh, and lately too, uh, some other policymakers have pushed this notion that we need to guarantee employment for people. Uh, people have many barriers to employment, as you know, whether it's uh, being in and out of the criminal justice system, whether it's having to get out of the labor force to care for uh, an elder, whether it's you know going back to school part-time but still wanting to work part-time, uh, whether it's a disability that somebody has but they still want to get in the workforce, whether it's transportation issues uh, and an inability to get there, whether it's getting a, having a driver's license, all of these things can be barriers to employment. So we've never really taken a comprehensive approach and said, hey, what can we do to ensure that these areas uh, that we can guarantee employment? That's sort of a radical thing at one end, but it's something to aspire to. And I think, you know, if we play our cards right and if, if policies were put in place, I think the region could at least get back, at least get close to where the national rates are. Uh, so, I mean, this idea of full employment has been around for a long time. Uh, and, you know, uh, it can have enormous impacts because the most persistent problem, one of them, uh, when we look at poverty, poor health, uh, poor education outcomes, whatever they are, a lot of it comes back to the idea of just not having a job, not having a source of consistent employment. And this is especially true in rural areas and especially true in areas where you have large amounts of natural resource extraction that have pushed out other business investment in those areas. We have a very undiverse economy, uh, less diverse economy, and um, it's led to these problems. Uh, we can get into some of those if you guys want to. Uh, also, the region was just hit so hard through deindustrialization. So, you know, when steel collapsed in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, coal mines shut down as well uh, uh, in towns like Gary, West Virginia, that were owned primarily by U.S. steel. So that deindustrialization left us with a population that were, you know, heavily into manufacturing of glass, steel, uh, other other things as well, uh, chemical manufacturing. When those all collapsed uh, in the late '70s, early '80s, it just it led to a huge out migration of people in the region, but it also led to persistent joblessness uh, in the region. Uh, so the idea is, you know, a national federal program. But also, you know, I think when we look at our region, especially that it's a place that has needed something like this for a very long time. Well, I, I wanted to throw out a couple of things. One is when you started, not to cause political controversy, but you started, oh, started, started, started yeah. with, you know, sounding like there was nothing before this sort of extraction economy uh, happened. And and the thing is that the first thing that happened in Appalachia is that we took away the culture of the people, the indigenous people that were thrown out and all the things that went on there. And I always feel like that's part of a big part of why we've always been in trouble is because we lost our way right off the, the get go. But then I, so I got to throw that out there, but the, because I think we have to honor what already happened before the white guy showed up. That's all. Then the other piece is I was thinking, you know, it's all fine and good that we want to have full employment. And I totally agree. People's values are so tied up in, in um, you know, what they do and how they do it. But a lot of the 
um, people that I see in my region are people who use their back to make a living. And, and that's being erased more and more and more. And so how do we get people to a more skilled level so they can make a living, not just get a paycheck? So that's my first question. And then that leads me to where the heck is the broadband? <laughs> well, that's our, that's on number two on my list. There, I know, but... I know. And so, uh -huh. so all these these things that we have to overcome, and and you know, I think we start out with a lot of positives because people want a job, like you said. I think they do, but they want a job they can be proud of, mm -hmm. and they also want to be like other people. Uh, you know, they don't want to just get the minimum, whatever. So I just think there's so many steps. How do we how do we get there? Okay, well I'm sure I'm sure Ted has that um, that answer right on how we how we solve the <laughs> chronic uh, poverty problem of Appalachia. But I guess uh, just mentioning that it occurs to me that you know all of the well-meaning programs in the world will will not work if if there persists with this kind of learned helplessness behavior. You know, it seems to me there's something overlying the region that we've had, at least in my lifetime, you know, 40, 50, 60 years of, of you know, perpetual recession. You know, it seems like this resource, yeah, you can blame, it, blame extraction economies, you can blame deindustrialization, but there's something within the area that is 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 like a learned helplessness it feels to me cultural norm. yeah cultural or it's like yeah. it's like looking to the lord of the manor to fix things and that guy's <laughs> already moved to the bahamas you know and and there is no one leading yeah i mean there's a lot of economists and others that have talked about what's quote unquote called the appalachian effect yeah uh and trying to explain those things i'm not a i'm, I'm not a huge proponent of getting into cultural mores of why people don't do or blaming people for, you know, being on welfare because it's a lifestyle. I mean, I think you have to be very careful uh, in those assessments because I think the cultural arguments are what fill the gaps when we don't have an idea of what's happening. Uh, and, you know, that was, you know, you can go back to Michael Harrington's Other America or several other books have been written about Appalachia that try to put everything in the cultural realm. Uh, I've just never been convinced I guess I'm too much of a, maybe a little bit of a Marxist. I don't think that those are the primary structural reasons for the lack of job opportunities or chalked up to cultural things. I think they more have to do with structural things within our economy, you know, within the structures of how things were made, whether it was, we can look at Appalachia, especially about land ownership. Uh, absentee land ownership was a huge issue in this place and that, definitely determined that outside absentee land ownership definitely played a large role in the formation of the economy. But, you know, in terms of extraction, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I'm in Kanawha County, West Virginia and Kanawha County, you know, was the birthplace, not the birthplace, but, you know, it's actually, Kanawha means white uh, rock and that meant salt. And that was the very first thing, the first mines that were here right when the state formed even before. And then it was timber uh and then it was uh oil and then it was coal and now we're in a huge renaissance of natural gas and uh extraction so it's been a pretty uh, uh familiar and pretty 
consistent theme throughout the region, you know, and very few places have ever been able to, you know, solve the sort of resource curse. When you have a boom and bust economy that's not conducive to a business investment, it leads to out-migration, low economic diversity, and just long-run poor economic performance. Uh, We've definitely seen that out. I mean, West Virginia, for instance, the only state that's completely in Appalachia, we had over 2 million people in 1950. Now we have about 1.75. That's pretty, it's the only state that lost population at that time, but those structural factors are just, I mean, these things were pointed out too by scholars uh, uh, over the years as well, but just by people that have worked in the labor movement and others about some of these key reasons why the state has suffered that. And it's, it is a rural state and people have a sense of independence in those things. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying like, you know, uh, there are other rural places that have much better economic and social outcomes. Sure. Uh, at least as we measure them. I mean, like, you know, these, you know, uh, you can get into all kinds of debates on whether you want to see industrialization or not, but we need a goods producing economy. I think uh, people who actually do real jobs that produce actual things because we have a lot of jobs that aren't producing much. That's especially true in the financial sector. Um, okay. Well, um, right on cue, we are just about to shift over to broadband. So if you see a little blip in the uh, recording, it's because broadband just failed us here in <laughs> Appalachia. But before we get into that, I want to um, mention that you are listening to when the biomass hits the wind turbine with Jan Annie Warmke, reminding you it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. Thank God. Thank God. So we're joined today by uh, Natalia Rudiak and and uh, Ted Bettner, and uh, we were just talking about some of the full employment issues, uh, some of the historical extraction economy type issues that have been uh, plaguing Appalachia since really it became known as Appalachia. But Natalia, I wanted to get in uh, because to my way of thinking, one of the things right now, one of the key elements is the lack of broadband, the lack of connectivity because this is a beautiful region and and people want to come and relocate to Appalachia but their their ability to do their job is hindered by the fact that there is no reliable broadband in in many parts if not most parts of the region so what are you going to do about that well, I'm going to also lean on <laughs> lean on my friend Ted. Um, I don't know how involved Ted you have been involved with this broadband or broadband research. Uh, well, some of the issues I know are 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 simply geographical, right? You know, we have a a uh, limited population base, so many of the companies, when they look at it from a um, economic incentive, they say, "Listen, it's just not worth our while to be stringing lines." Uh, every four miles, we get a connection. You know, it costs us $30,000 to provide $50 a month service to somebody. It's just not going to happen. Um, so then you say, okay, well, what about wireless? And we've got mountains and and trees. But and, they aren't charging $50 well, a I know, month. They're, they're not. charging hundreds of well, dollars. So, so how, do we, how do we address this? How do we, I mean, this always, every time I talk to elected officials, I say, this is like the electrification of rural America in the 1930s, 1940s, where we made as a, as a country the decision that everyone deserved electricity. So we were going to set up a system that provided it. Well, broadband is the electricity of this century. How do we, why do, why do we not have the same political will at this point? 
Well, I would say we don't have a base of labor unions to provide that political will that, yeah. you know, that gave us the New Deal and public works projects. I'd also say, unfortunately, we don't believe in public work anymore. We believe in giving checks to the private sector and subsidizing them to do it. Uh, and that has been gone for a while, unfortunately. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It's not in the record. I mean, I wrote a report, God, 2008 or 2009. With, with the Central Appalachian Regional Network. I don't know if you all are familiar with them, but yeah. you know, identifying this. So it's like deja vu. I'm like, how many times it's, it's been going on for 15 years? Yes. You know, I mean, it's obviously, it's not in their economic interest to sometimes put out, you know, like you said, these lines into rural communities because the numbers just don't make sense. Well, you and I know they make sense because not everything should be down to cost. It should be the value of what you're providing. And that value is important because it's important for the development of the community to have a, a good foundation of infrastructure in order to have uh, the ability to achieve prosperity or to achieve uh, a good economy that works for all of us. And I think we get that. And that's usually where the state steps in because nobody else is going to do it. Uh, well, here's the thing, Ted. So we, we're still not counting the true cost of this when we don't provide it. But secondly, there's a lot of pushback from corporations in small communities where the small communities had tried to create their own broadband yeah. and did it. And then they passed laws making them stop. And Absolutely. so you can't have it both ways. Well, apparently the corporations can. Yeah, we so, just don't have political power. Yeah, I mean, there are pockets of you know places that have done fairly well, like uh, in Hardy County, a CardiNet, which is a cooperative yeah. that provides very high-speed mm -hmm. broadband. They don't have, and a friend of mine lives in Hardy County, and he doesn't have cell service, but his broadband's a lot faster than mine in Charleston, West Virginia, and it's a lot better. And it was a really good uh, uh, example of that being done in a way, uh, in a, you know, in a good way. Obviously, there's places like Chattanooga. There's other places that have done that thing, but those preemptive bills, as you talked about, have gotten in the way of the ability to do that, but it's even local communities not being willing to challenge uh, the uh, monopolies that are that are in our yeah. communities. You know, like in West, you know, I'm in Charleston. We have two choices. That basically, you know, so I mean, yeah, it's just it's 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 called a market failure, it's like childcare. It's a market failure, right? You have yeah. to do mm -hmm. something about yeah. it because it's expensive. But if you want, you know, uh, if you want people to be into the workforce. And because we need two incomes these days in order to make ends meet, you know, you, you have to have childcare and it has to be affordable and it's not. So that's a Well, market. Natalia, did you have something um, to I add did, on that? I did actually. So Reimagine Appalachia uh, has been working on basic broadband principles that we'd like to see across our four states. Um, and kind of the reasoning behind this is, and I'm actually, I'm looking at this right now. Let me count. 14.2 billion for, this is this is coming out of the infra infrastructure, sorry, I say infrastructure, Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. We have 14 billion for affordable connectivity programs. We have 2 billion for a broadband reconnect program through the Rural Utility Service. We have 2.75 billion for digital equity planning and 1 billion for middle mile connection. So someone else can do the math, but we have billions of dollars that are available out there 
through federal investments. Again, we keep saying this, but this really is transformational investment. And I, you know, I used to say this is a one, to, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, but I'm not going to say that anymore because we need to keep pushing for more uh, points of transformation right. because That's we can right. do it. We can succeed. But reimagine Appalachia. We're having an event. Uh, it's virtual on Tuesday, May 9th from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with partners that are local. We'll talk about local uh, friendly elected officials from all levels of government. We're going to have labor unions. We're going to have community-based organizations to really figure out how to push through this bureaucracy. Um, And like uh, some folks have said, push through some of the tired politics as usual, uh, because we have this funding that we absolutely need to harness. We need to convince people in in our communities and our local officials that, hey, you know, if you don't do this, this is going to pass us by. This is going to go to the Dakotas. This is going to go, you know, to other places in the U.S. So um, if you go to reimagineappalachia.org and click on events, uh, you'll see you'll see this event. Please sign up. It'll be really, really interesting. We'll talk about these broadband principles. We'll talk about this funding available. We'll talk about what we need, need to do to get more funding and how to uh, leverage state funding uh, and maybe even local funding with that. So I really encourage people uh, to come to that event to continue this, this deep dive discussion. And I agree with what Ted said with around labor unions. Labor unions are a big partner uh, with us in this in this struggle, um, but we need to meet and and actually and like you said, this actually connects to the full employment uh, situation. The jobs are there, you know, and 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 you know, this is a tangent. When we talk about those jobs, what are those jobs? The the jobs are the challenges. The jobs are transportation jobs. The jobs are healthcare jobs. You know, the jobs are mine reclamation jobs. Like, look around Appalachia. There's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of things to fix. And yes. there's, yeah. we need, yeah. like I said, to leverage the funding available and our collective power uh, to inspire people to do that. Well, and we also see a lot because of all the folks who come to mm. Blue Rock Station. Over the years, we've seen a lot of people who live in areas that they find no longer desirable or affordable, like, you know, Washington, D.C. is an example where the cost of living is so high and their job is remote in nature. And if they had broadband of any sort, they would love to relocate. So then we start to see an in-migration because this is a beautiful region and very affordable. And because many of our jobs are 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 virtual, um, we could then begin to see skilled labor force moving into the region as opposed to the best educated from this region moving out. And and it all sort of rests on this Mm -hmm. infrastructure that no matter how much you want to pretend you can pull yourself up from the bootstraps and all of that kind of thing, I can't make an internet system. You know, I can, I can educate myself, I can work hard, but you know, it's just not going to happen unless somebody is stepping in to create the infrastructure upon which I can, I can shine, you know, I can, yeah. I can but display But that's what I'm talents. talking about. We've, we, it, we're not measuring the true cost. What does that cost us? that we cannot engage with these people that physically and intellectually want to be where we are. They want to have a farm or live where it's rural and they can, you know, go to the local pub and, um, 
Well, like, it, what's the true cost? Well, and to it's, us it for extends that? beyond that because what you saw during COVID is the school systems went to a remote system, but much of this region could not participate in that. You know, yeah. they were simply so we have a two year hiatus of people who are already behind and now they're further behind right. because they can't take advantage of, of a remote educational mm -hmm. system. Because as we saw during COVID and without COVID, people sitting in, in their cars at the local library or hoping McDonald's. to tap in or McDonald's yeah. because that's the only place they can they can do their homework. But what's the true cost to that, to our region, that our kids are less because they can't access to do homework or do the testing or whatever? Yeah. We're, I'm saying we're just not measuring everything I think we should be measuring if we want to make a scientific right. and economic uh, so Natalia, go out and give them hell because anytime we talk to <laughs> we talk to a, a legislator or whatever, you can see it in their eyes. I've got broadband. What's the problem? You know, they yeah, absolutely don't have that kind of really empathy of saying, yeah, once once I have it, problem solved. Well, you know, guess what? The broadband people you know, drive up to their door just because they know where their bread is buttered. Yeah, but here's the thing. So during COVID, I testified before the Ohio legislature about the need for business businesses, small businesses to have access to broadband. And there were several people in that hearing who are in the legislature who said, I'm farmer, blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're legislators, and I don't have good broadband. So they're sitting there with the same issues, and they're not fighting. Right. They're but just not fighting for also it. Also, the very next day after you testified, they drove up to the front door and said, how can we get broadband into your house? Like, OK, you made a noise, so we're going to try and keep that you quiet. That made me so mad. I know? said, well, what about my neighbors? They have kids. And the guy looks at me like I slapped him. He said, look, ma'am, I got called to show up here at nine o'clock on Saturday morning to talk to you. And I said, look, when you come here and you tell me you're going to bring that cable up and you're going to give that to my neighbors, too, then I want to talk to you. Jay's like, why would you do that? I'm like, because <laughs> Don't send them away, man. it's not right. And I'd be embarrassed as hell. Excuse uh -huh. me, Adam, for cursing. I wasn't cursing. I was exacting a location. It was, it was emphasis. That's right. Punctuation. But, but I, I was really angry about it because right. it didn't make any sense at okay. all. Okay. Well, we, we aren't going to solve this, but you're going to hold a, um, a forum on this, right? And yes. Natalia, we better get to and, the community summit. Well, no, no, no. The farm bill. And, and I wanted to see because uh, one of the other items that you guys are doing, and you guys at, at uh, Reimagining Appalachia do an awful lot of stuff. And it feels to me like you're herding cats all over the place, um, including <laughs> including legislators. But um, but one of the things was talking about how you, how we can make the farm bill work in this region, and I, I was curious about that because uh, farm bill is a huge thing, right? So so what does that have in store for for Appalachia? Um, well, again, if you go to our website, um, chock full of stuff. Um, we actually have been working. Um, so for folks that don't know, um, the farm bill is just this giant bill uh, that is negotiated. And I'm sorry, it just slipped my brain. How many years, Ted? How, how, how often? Uh, I think it's every three years. Three years. Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, so it, um, 
yeah, it is what it is. It's it has it deals with rural areas and agriculture and also nutrition and things like you oh, know yeah. nutrition benefits and food programs. So things like SNAP benefits. So we have a platform that we've worked with forty other organizations throughout Appalachia, like exhaustive number of meetings to create a farm bill platform and take this platform to our federal legislators and say, hey, fight for us. And this is the things you should fight for. Well, Natalia, Annie just reminded me that we're, oh, we're out of boy. time. Oh, boy, we so, just got started. Wait, so, we want to just say one thing about the Community Summit. No, 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 we don't. We, we're going to just direct you <laughs> we'll to the link. notes. We'll have uh, a link. Yeah, we'll have a link. In show notes. And, all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to Natalia Rudiak and uh, Ted Bet- uh, Bettner, right? Bettner? Yep. And, um, thank you so much. And, and our Emmy Award-winning producer, Adam Rich. And we want to thank you for just spending a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, eat your veggies, and clean up your own mess. All right. Until next time. You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at blueRockStation.com.